BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor, writer, and director, Lake Bell. You may have seen her on screen in films like No Strings Attached, It's Complicated, or Black Panther, Wakanda forever. When she's not in front of the camera, she's often behind it, directing two feature films, along with episodes of the Emmy-nominated Pam and Tommy and the ABC series Bless This Mess, which she also co-created. Through the years, she's led a varied career, seamlessly moving from one medium or genre to the next. But through it all, there's been one obsession she keeps returning to, a passion she can't quite shake, and that is the human voice. She first explored this curiosity in her 2013 directorial debut in a world, playing a vocal coach who unwittingly finds herself in competition with her father, a renowned voiceover artist played by Fred Melamed. Nearly a decade later, Belle has returned to the subject with her excellent new audiobook, Inside Voice, My Obsession with How We Sound. Created with Pushkin Industries, the project is written and narrated by Bell, featuring interviews with legends like Drew Barrymore, Pam Greer, Tracy Ullman, and Jeff Goldblum. Lake also speaks with poets, doctors, linguists, voice coaches, 
and pedestrians on the street to discover how this vital piece of our identity, the human voice, serves as an x-ray of our personal histories. You can listen to Inside Voice wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. To learn more, visit talkeasypod.com or click the link in the description of this episode. But for today, Lake and I unpack the many facets of this audiobook, including her upbringing in Manhattan in the 1980s with a tape recorder always by her side, how her voice has changed through the last decade, and why she continues to search for her true sound after all these years. This is Lake Bell. To do a sound test, yeah. I thought maybe we would do uh, some vocal exercises. Yeah, yeah. Do okay. you want to? Okay, so first. Can you lead it for me? Sure. First, what I'll have you do is settle yourself, make sure you have equal weight on each butt cheek, right? And you want to let your. A little intimate to, to lead well, I'm with not, that. I'm not. I'm not over there, you yeah. know, checking. Yeah, I have you to did trust look. you. I looked down. <laughs> I, did look down. <laughs> I did look down, but I cannot see your butt cheeks uh-huh. from where I'm sitting. Yeah, so that's up that. to you. <laughs> it's up to me. Yeah, that's up to you. I got to trust you here. This is a tr- this is as much a trust exercise as it is a vocal one. So I'm going to trust that your um, uh, your butt cheeks are. <laughs> relaxed, that your belly and your diaphragm and your chest, when you take a nice deep breath in, you're filling up all the space because your lungs in the top section go all the way up to your shoulders in a way. And as well, in the lower back, you're filling it up like a balloon. And then out. And then we're going to be elastic in our mouth. We're going to allow for our mouth to open really wide and then teeny tiny and wide again and then teeny tiny and wide and teeny tiny. And then this is kind of painful. It is painful, but it's always worth the pain. Um, That's a great way to start. And then the last thing I would do is I would give yourself a face massage around your nose and around your lips, and really, really wake up all of the, especially the jaw muscles. Anyone listening can do this too. Ah. And then shake it out. Okay. Now we've arrived. Welcome. Welcome. Lake Bell. That's me. How you feeling? I feel good. I feel really good. I'm glad we did that. I feel like I'm in a liminal state, but I feel good. What does that mean? I feel like right before the holidays, in between two massive breaks, as you kind of embark on the new year, there is this sense of like flotation and you feel like floaty in between chapters. And that's how I feel right now, where I do feel liminal and you can make a choice whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, because floating can be really like kind of amazing, like the weight is off, you know, like, yes, please let me float through this moment. Or it could be like, holy shit, I don't know what the fuck is going on. And I'm going to choose the former. Is it hard for you to choose the former? I think I'm naturally an optimist, and so I will always choose the slightly more rose-colored version of things. But my realism allows for me to be aware. I see you. I see the scary part of liminal 
state, but I choose not to sit into it. Well, because you're also naturally a planner. I am. I'm inherently somebody who likes to organize and plan and control what I can because I understand that the rest of the elements are out of control. And when I say elements, I mean the givens of work, of children, of relationships. I understand the chaos and the beauty of what life has to offer, whether you like it or not. I've had children that have had health issues. I've gone through a divorce. I've gone through things that will support the fact that you don't know what the next beat is going to be. And so thus, yes, I like to have my pantry very organized. The most immediate thing we can pinpoint that is not in the future, but in the now mm -hmm, is this audiobook of yours called uh, Inside Voice. Now, this comes from your long standing obsession with the human voice. But I, I want to understand where this obsession began. You grew up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan in the 1980s. Looking back, was Lauren Bacall the first voice you fell in love with? Lauren Bacall was the first voice that I noticed and was like, I got to put that in a file somewhere. It sounded differently than anyone I had known directly. My mom has a beautiful voice, but Lauren Bacall had something that was different. There was a deepness, that vocal quality where I thought, ooh, I want to put that away in a file somewhere and maybe think of women sounding like that. It just was indelible for some reason. Not only was she in the, you know, motion pictures and not only was she kind of my entryway into seeing movies that weren't sort of in the cinemas in the 80s. It was like, you know, the first time you see certain classics to have and to have not. I felt like those were, that was the first time not only was I cinematically peaked, but also her voice and her vocal quality. It was deeper than the women around me that I knew. My nanny, when I was a little girl, she had an amazing Irish accent, actually. And I don't speak about her in the book, but she used to call me squidgy. Um, what did it sound like? She, I, I honestly can't do the Irish accent, but she would just be like, oh. Ooh, squeaky, you know, and I just, she was so cute and like a sweet older lady. Uh, and she was just very important to me. But um, I just think about New York being such a central sort of hub of so many different sounds that really kind of made it impossible to ignore that voices sounded like a multitude of different things coming from every corner of the globe. And that was something I was interested in. It was around this time that you landed your first job performing on The Late Lake Show. The Late Lake Show was my first professional endeavor. Was in, that on CBS? In the arts. It did not make it to CBS. I was six years old. And it was just a procrastination tool to go to bed. I was mm -hmm. just like, hey, you know, grown up making grown ups laugh. Let's do the late lake show, you know. And Is that the theme song? It was not. Um, I just adjusted it there. We had kind of a great band. And when I say we, it was just me and my stuffed animals. And it really was just like whoever I could get involved in the moment. Sometimes I would pull some of the grown ups into it. But really, it was just like precocious child trying to entertain and it was there was a kaleidoscope of different sounds and voices and accents and dialects that I would just throw at the wall and make grown-ups laugh. Did both your mom and your father equally enjoy it? My parents are divorced. They were divorced when I was like 
one. So it was my mom and my stepfather, Gilbert, who I really entertained because they had dinner parties. I had an audience built in. So after the dinner parties and drinks had been imbibed, you know, it would be like, oh, look how cute. And, you know, they're a good audience. (laughs) The point is that they were very amused. And um, I think any time a kid gets a laugh from an adult, they're like, ooh, gotta, I'm going to pin that. Come age 12, you and your mother move to Vero Beach, Florida. Then at 13, you work as an au pair in France for a family with six children. Then at 14, you go back to Florida, then go to boarding school. Of that time, you said, when I was younger, I was inspired to travel, mainly just to hear how people sounded in other countries. I collected these little tidbits because it felt like I could become someone else when voicing an accent. Why do you think at that age you wanted to become someone else? I mean, escapism, I think, is built into childhood somehow. You're either interested in comic books or movies or imagination play, imaginative play, rather. You seek out opportunities to take on different personas and escape, you know? That's just part of childhood, I think, and part of being a mind that's forming and creating new worldviews and concepts. And so for me, I definitely looked at creating voices and collecting dialects and traveling and hearing different sounds swirling around me. That felt like being immersed in different narratives and getting to really fly in my imagination. I remember I had this one journal where I used to draw a lot too. So I would write and draw in a journal and I each page was chalk filled of drawings and words that just was associated with a different country or culture or what have you. And it started with, I wish I was, ellipsis, Italian. I wish I was from Japan. You know, I wish I was, and then I would just say a different you know, it would symbolize some kind of otherness. And I was curious about it. And in the drawings and in the kind of words, it would all be almost as if it was in the accent dialect or language of the chosen chapter. And you think this all stems from escapism? I think it's interest in a childish, playful way of thinking of sociology or anthropology or culture studies. It's like before you kind of understand what it is, but it's a mind that's interested in also creative narrative, right? So I did get into poetry and prose and writing and understood that all of these things that I yearned for in myself was really just characterizations, characters that I wanted to investigate or write about or learn more about. Starting at the age of 15, didn't you start capturing some of those characterizations on a VHS camera? Yeah. So I was living in France, in Brittany. My best friend Kate and I, we became sort of sisters. And my school year abroad program was in Brittany because, frankly, nobody speaks English in Brittany. You could never do it in Paris because everybody speaks English in Paris. You're not going to learn French. So I was in Brittany and I wanted to document my extraordinary experience there. And I was 15 and I thought, gosh, I don't have a video camera. So My French family told me that there was a mall in town that they would take me to. And I went to a camera store 
And I couldn't afford to, obviously, at that age. And especially at that time, you can't buy a VHS camera, Mm -hmm. video camera. So I rented it. I rented a VHS camera. And just mind you, it was massive (laughs) because you have to get a VHS in there. So it was just a huge behemoth of a thing. And, um, And I brought it everywhere. And it was definitely strange. I think people, especially in kind of suburban France were like, what the hell is this crazy Mm -hmm. American kid doing? But I was so grateful to have these tapes. And it was the beginning of my filmmaking, I suppose. Why did you change your voice? To do that? Yeah. Um, To say the thing that was undeniably true about (laughs) something that you've given your life to. Because I do think that playing with my voice is a big part of how it's like almost uh, it's play for me. You know, it's not like in denial. But yes, I mean, my therapist says the same thing about like when I'm like, and you know, it's really, <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to be co-parent. <laughs> like, why are you laughing? You know, but I think in filmmaking and making pieces of art, I tend to not want to overly take myself too seriously. And I think I can overcorrect. Mm-hmm. Well, we can swing the pendulum back. Sure. And be plenty yeah. silly. We can be silly and serious. But you're right. I mean, it's a fair call out because I, I do think because I am a filmmaker, I am a writer, I am a director, I am an actor, I'm a producer and those things. But I think there's a little part of me that's like, fucking get over yourself. You know, <laughs> like those are just the words of what I am. But I don't know where that comes from, whether that's like me being self-conscious, I'm going to be like pretentious or some shit. We're figuring it out. In real time. That's the goal of the show. Okay. You mentioned those tapes that you filmed on the VHS camera. I'm curious, have you looked back at them? Yeah, I have looked back on it because what that started for me in France, that first VHS, I ended up recording all of my life until I moved to L.A. So in different types of DV, I've had them all digitized. Unbelievable. Yeah. That you chronicled this period I mean, it feels more like when I look back on them, I, you really see through the lens of discovery. You see like a young brain being like, wow, to things. What would it, you wow to? Wow to, first of all, I edit as I go because, of course, I didn't have editorial equipment. So I started to learn. I'd get very frustrated. I remember early on when someone said, hey, can I try? Can I sh- try shooting? And I'd be like, uh, yeah, but quick cuts, quick cuts. Yeah, I used to say <laughs> As a kid, I just be like, oh, it's too long. It's too, you got to uh, just do little bits, little bits, <laughs> because it would be so fun to see the jump cut into God, things. You must have been such a fun friend. I know. I know. <laughs> I think about it. I'm like, oh, gosh. <laughs> but you know what? I was a fun friend because I feel like I mean, there's definitely cringy moments. I, of on course, there. relate to all of this. This is, this is uh, yeah. totally tracking. But in that time when you're using the VHS camera, mm-hmm. were you also using the dictaphone, dictaphone from Radio later. Shack? Radio Shack dictaphone came in when I moved to England because... It says eight, at 18. At 18, yeah. When I started to record accents and dialects and vocal qualities and quirks that I found interesting. When you look back at the tapes, you listen to the old recordings of just people's voices. Do you think collecting these experiences offered you some kind of control over them in a time that maybe... You didn't have a whole lot of it. Certainly the video camera early on as a young girl, that felt like a tool for control. It's documentation, sure, but it's also 
It's in real time realizing that something's special and wanting to harness it. And the control of quick cuts, quick cuts, quick cuts. I mean, that sort of does round out and kind of is a snapshot of what I enjoyed about it, which was I could editorialize the experience. But I think that later on with the dictaphone, that became a slightly more focused academic interest that I was satiating. I was scratching an itch of something very specific that I narrowed in on as an interest. The human voice. The human voice. And why we sound the Why way we, we do. sound the way we do, but then also the beauty and joy and gift of other voices that I noticed. I hear you. I see you. I want it. It became like kind of, yeah, it's an obsession. It's a passion. Like my whole day will be derailed if I hear a great sound of a voice. I'm going to be late for this meeting, goddammit, because I got to go and talk to this person. I mean, you know, whether it's the barista or a doctor that I, I go to get, see the eye doctor and, you know, I'm just like, where are you from? Mm-hmm. You know, my mom called this out. She was like, it is a really funny thing that you do when you talk to people about their voice, because what you're doing is you're sort of fanning the ego a little bit because I'm asking you about you and your voice. And yet people are so the humility and the kind of like uh, red cheeked, oh, but I don't love my voice. I don't like it. But it's this fun thing where they get to talk about themselves, but then also be kind of humble and self-deprecating at the same time. We'll be right back after a quick break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from The Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. 
Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You lightly hint at these experiences you're talking about in the new audiobook as you try to um, map out why your voice sounds the way it does. Why don't we play a clip from that? Maybe you grew up in a household that required little girls to sound like pretty little girls and boys to sound like strong big boys. Maybe you had a step-parent who had a vocal quirk that you vowed to never emulate, but then, as you adopted it in your adulthood, you overcompensated to snub it out. Maybe you smoked all through your teens. Maybe you idealized your grandfather who spoke like Howard Hughes. Maybe you coveted an identity with a certain community that spoke just so. Maybe you grew up in three different boroughs of the same city. Maybe you left home as a kid and you had to use your grown-up voice too soon. Maybe you wanted to fit in. Maybe you wanted to be different. Maybe all of the above. Just so you know, listener, <laughs> when you listen to that book, I am fully animated mm-hmm. in all of it. Are you describing yourself in that? Yeah. The maybe is a fun device, but it actually all these things are you. I mean, somewhat, somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> like Belle. There are, there's quite a few things in there that are true. The Howard Hughes thing is true. I mean, that's not quite true. I didn't live in three boroughs, mm-hmm. um, but I lived in different parts of the country. Um, it's not all me, to be fair. Seriously, real talk. It's not. It's, it's not all it's, you. It's a lot. There are things that feel very personal, but the whole the whole book is personal. Well, the whole book is personal. And it, it reminded me of a film that you once wrote called NOCD. Who are you? What is this? <laughs> this is your life? What? Do, how do you know about that? How do you know about that? Why would I not know? Nobody knows about that film. Well. How do you I, know about I, NOCD? I, I told you. Okay. I'm going to show up for you. Yeah, you're showing up. Okay, because that's deep cuts. That's like B-sides. Mm-hmm. So NOCD was a script that I wrote with Colleen McGinnis, Not Our Class Dear, which was kind of a, at its core, there's a lot of culture clash in and around an 18-year-old boy. He's a sort of waspy little kid who finds he's the bastard child of an illicit affair his mother had with a Jewish shrink. And he's so thrilled that he might be Jewish. He goes on like a mission to find his real father. Mm. Anyway, the point is, yeah, it was a total clash of culture. And my mom is very waspy. My dad is very Jewish, or at least culturally Jewish. And so, yeah, that was a playground for me in the kind of thinking about all the voices. And, And there's a tremendous amount of this kind of kaleidoscope uh, sounds in characterizations in the movie. One of the strongest sections in the book, tethered to your own life, comes in chapter three, in which you say, the truth and beauty of a voice that imbues humility, joys, imperfections, and pain is the very heart of this book. Those are all qualities you found in the story of actor Pam Greer and her experience with psychogenic dysphonia. Can you explain that term for us? Psychogenic dysphonia is the loss of voice due to physical or emotional trauma. 
And it means your voice almost freezes up, like it doesn't have access to sound. It's not available. It is a very moving and sobering part of Inside Voice, my book. And I, you know, I'm very close with Pam, and I think of her as a family member. And, you know, she's very generous to share her story. And in the book, I I can relate to what that would feel like to not feel like you want to speak, but it's not a want. It's actually like a condition where your voice kind of goes on hiatus, basically, until you sort of deal with the trauma. But so she she experienced that after sexual assault. I found that section, one, because I've long admired her, two, because when she came on this show, I really considered just retiring <laughs> immediately afterward. But that bond you two share, you say, our experiences with sexual assault is a bond of pain. And I admit it's one of the reasons I lower my vocal pitch, perhaps to grab power, to command control. Either way, as Pam says, a speaking voice matures to sound more seasoned. And for me, that's both power and poetry. Mm -hmm. In that power and poetry, do you remember consciously lowering your vocal pitch? I, I don't when I... I don't remember consciously doing it, like where it really took a step down. I do notice that, for instance, in my arrival here and talking to you on mic, you know, I tend to be more self-aware vocally. And so my voice is in a lower register. However, as I started to say that, even in thinking about this book and, and recording this book and having a press tour on this book, I have become even more vocally self-aware in this process and realized that I think this is my pitch now, the one that I'm arriving to you with. So I think it's become more and more my sound. I will say we're all guilty of being a little lazy, and I have moments of vocal laziness where I'm not supported and I'm like I'm throwing it from my chest versus my my belly. Couple sure. drinks in. Couple eh, couple drinks in, I'll get lower. You know, <laughs> like it'll get more resonant. But I think that sometimes I'm like ah, I'm like overdoing it, and then I'm like, wait, I think that's me. You know, and then so it's like that thing of does this sound too? You know, it's funny. I've come from all of this work. I've started to listen to my voice in in different ways, really, mm. and be a little more thoughtful about it. Because I'm like, should it be higher? <laughs> like, if I did some vocal work, mm -hmm. I bet I could, I might come out of that work a little bit higher in pitch. I think I'm defaulting a little bit. I might be leaning on a crutch of lower pitch because it does sound, in my opinion, I'm thinking, oh, I sound more authoritative or something. If your voice was higher, mm -hmm. do you think it would be a more authentic representation of, of who you actually are? It, it might be. And what would that be? Well, it's so nuanced. It's probably a little bit here. So that's very subtle, but it's a little bit higher. And so if we look at it on a gender spectrum, it's a little bit more gendered feminine. Mm -hmm. But when I am now sitting in this voice, I feel a little looser because it's what I'm used to right now. But I'm sure if I took an hour right now, I could probably get to my my natural sound, which is, I think, I think a little higher, to be honest. And so in some ways, which you investigate in the audiobook, there's some part of you, some past self that has maybe been lost in this new voice that you have. I think we all have the privilege to evolve and to grow. 
And our voice also has that privilege. It's a part of that growth. And I think that, yeah, of course, my my little girl young voice has gone through some shit. <laughs> and my voice is a tapestry of everything I've endured. Um, you know, I've almost lost a child who was in severe duress in ICU. And, you know, I have a daughter with epilepsy and I've seen her seize 11 to 16 times a day. I've gone through divorce. I've had two home births. You know, there's there's so much that has happened that, of course, my voice is rich with life experience. And I think that's what Pam was saying. Additionally, yes, I'm a, a victim of assault and rape. And I think that those things are a part of not something I directly think about when it comes to my vocal quality. But I think that being very raw and honest about where you've come from, hopefully we get to walk around with the sound that feels honest and that is an act of generosity, which I talk about in the book, but there's an act of generosity to show up with your sound in the same way that you show up for someone as your true self. The more you pour into who you are and, gosh, I'm going to put in the work to be the best version of myself or the most whole version, the most authentic version of myself, that's generous to the people around you, right? So same with the voice. Mm, I'm sorry. I think that, you know, people, fuck, I mean, so, you know, I mean, I look at my daughter and my, my son, they are small, little people. And they had to be served such challenge right out of the gate. I think about their little voice, and they're in the book, and how it's just starting out. Little kind of quirks and lisps and soft R's or lacking R's or what have you. All of those things are so beautiful, and people really feel nostalgic for them. Those are vocal quirks, and people go, oh, I hope he doesn't stop saying, you know, hospital or whatever it is, right? Like, you know, those little things. I certainly haven't. <laughs> yeah. Though, but the, it's beautiful. It's like those are like vocal timestamps we have that are really meaningful to people. And, you know, and then they lose them. You know, it's like, oh, you've lost your list. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, no. I clearly have not. Do you, do you, I, do you think that you have one? I, I have a little one, yeah. Where, what words do you feel like it, it, um, my own name. Let's hear it. Sam. Now that sounds okay, but there are, uh, can you, the S's are tough mm -hmm. for me. S's are really hard for a lot of people. Yeah. I had to do, I took a, uh, diction class mm -hmm. when I was young. Were you self conscious about it or were, Not were your really. parents? Maybe, yeah, maybe my mother was. It's so weird. I just started thinking about this a couple of years ago. Like, oh, wow. Because it feels so far away and also, the career I've chosen also. <laughs> yeah, do you, but do you hear it? Do you hear it I a hear little it. bit sometimes? There are words that I avoid and I know. Can Can you share with I, me I, what words? I'm, I'm trying to remember what I wrote. I wrote one down today that I deleted. Um, so that you didn't have to fucking say it? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, I'll, I hear you. And I'll, and I'll know it in advance. So especially with plural, like a plural. There, there are, yeah, like words. what about soundscapes? Yeah, soundscapes. A little tough. A little hard. But, you know, on the other side of this book, it would almost be like the takeaway is what gives? <laughs> like, it's all right. If you have a uniqueness 
to your sound, then we're in a time and a place culturally and socially where that's cool. It's all good. But you would, it would be, the adjustment would be you would feel comfortable saying soundscapes <laughs> and not yeah. shunning certain words, right? Because you Did were you just like- shunning intentionally? What? Did you use shunning intentionally? Shunning. Well, shunning is not as bad as soundscapes. Jesus. I have something for us. Okay. One of the many joys of this book okay. is that you do... Yeah, okay. Okay. I'm like, where is he going with I this? I got you. I, got I know. You. I'm like, what is he gonna do? Have I failed you so far? No, not at all. I'm okay. very impressed. Okay. <laughs> One of the many joys of this book is that it does include so many timestamps they are talking about, both markers for yourself, but also markers for people close to you in your life. Mm-hmm. In particular, your daughter that you mentioned. There's a small clip in which she, um, well, she gives a speech of some kind. Yes. And I thought maybe we would play some of that. Why don't we take a listen? This is our moment. This is our time to put our people back to work and open doors of opportunity for our kids to restore prosperity and promote the cause of peace, to reclaim the American dream and reaffirm the fundamental truth that out of many we are one, that while we breathe, we hope, and where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. <laughs> um, yes, that's my daughter, Nova. Spoiler. Doing uh, Obama's Doing Obama's si se puede speech. Sí, sí, sí. Claro que sí. So, again, what I like about it is that, yeah, there's a nostalgia. There's a sense of, like, the innocence, sure. But then it's also like, oh, it's a voice before it's gone through the biggest change that happens in a voice's lifetime, which is puberty, you know? And so that's the first kind of hurdle and vocal transformation. Not to mention, it's kind of a remarkable time capsule of a voice that is not going to come back. Like, it's going to change. Yeah, I mean... It's probably already different than when you Totally. I mean, I already was like, oh, God, she was so young. It was only a, (laughs) a year ago. But I can see... I can just remember exactly being in my closet uh-huh. and I said, Nova, you got to come in here. I had to record it at home on my iPhone and I, I got her in my closet and um, we were on the ground by the carpet and she doesn't read fully yet or at least didn't at the time. So I had to read a phrase and then have her repeat it and read again mm-hmm. and then we spliced it together. Well, you know, that, that doesn't seem to have stopped presidents before. So I think, <laughs> I, exactly. I think she's going to be okay. Oh, goodness. The baby voice. Sexy baby. Yes. Uh, Not just baby. Right. Sexy baby. Yes. But we're talking about how pliable voices are, Mm -hmm. how they can be controlled, modified, reconfigured. One such reconfiguration is the sexy baby voice, which was pioneered by Betty Boop in the 1930s and then popularized by Paris Hilton in the 2000s. Back in 2013... You made a film around the human voice, interrogating this trend. In a world. I thought we'd play uh, a deleted scene from that movie for a second. So when he told you he was writing a book, were you just like, holy shit, that's balls"? 
Can I do a vocal experiment on you? Why? Why not? Because that's a weird question to ask. I don't even know you. I'm Carol. You were just you were just interviewing me. Still weird. I'm a vocal coach. I'm a writer. Be good for the story. Fine. Fine. Okay, good. Um, so you're just gonna count to ten, but when you get to the odd numbers, you're gonna use the lowest point in your register, and when you get to the even numbers, you're gonna use the highest point in your register, and then right after, you're just gonna speak without thinking. So you're gonna go one, two, three. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Here is my voice. <sighs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Here is my voice. Oh my god. Right. That's so weird. It sounds lower. And it sounds. Amazeballs. <laughs> I think one of the most interesting parts of that scene is if we compare, and when I listen back to the story, I mean, sorry, when I listen back to the book, when we were sort of in editorial, I, my voice is lower now than it was in the movie. That was nine years ago. Yeah, nine years ago. So my voice in the movie as sure as Carol, but ostensibly it's a lake type of voice, mm-hmm. but it's a lake nine years ago. That's... And that voice is a higher t- pitch pre-children, pre-divorce, pre-heartache and pain and traumas, you know, higher considerably. I mean, I'm, can I, can I do a vocal experiment on you? You know, I'm up there. I don't know. It might be cool. I don't know. You're a writer. Can I do it? You know, it's there versus here. Right. That's what you were responding to. Because mm-hmm. we were listening to that. And I noticed when it was Carol, your character talking, you responded with a sort of visible. Well, it's just I haven't spoken about it before. I hadn't really articulated it before, but I did notice it when I was in the final throes of getting the book up and ready to go and <laughs> publish. I was like, oh, it's so interesting. I don't talk about the fact that my voice is actually a lot higher in that movie. And then in in I Do Until I Don't, I don't put a clip from that, but I play, and that was... 2017. Right. So midway point between now and in the world that my voice, I'm actually doing a vocal affectation in that movie. Mm-hmm. I'm playing kind of a version of my mom's voice. Not my mom, but my her, I used elements of her voice, her mm-hmm. vocal quality. What does that sound like? Well, you know, it's... Um, you know, Lake, I I think um, Wayne Scotting is a is a really good choice. I, you know, she's she's soft, and for Alice, that's who I play. And w- well, sure, uh, okay, you know, she has kind of like this higher and softer sound. Well, I think we should interrogate this uh, the, the sexy baby phenomenon a little bit. But before we do that, can you identify the three? Core distinctions of the voice. The three core distinctions of the sexy baby vocal quality is such that it is higher pitch and it is fry, which is that croak, and then it is up talk. So, you know, it's it has nothing to do with the word like, but 
I think a lot of people like to use the word like to get into it. Here's uh, what you said about the sexy baby trend back in 2013. This is in, uh, in The New Yorker. All these beautiful, smart girls crying on reality shows about how they can't get a man. Well, your voice is the beginning of the problem, don't you think? The vocal pandemic that is the sexy baby virus is a form of submission to men as if you're a 12-year-old girl. Women who came in for jobs on my movie and said, I seriously can't wait to work on this. They lost me at hello. So that is a while ago. I know that girl who did that interview. Um, <laughs> this is nine years ago. Yeah, it's nine years ago. I think the thing that has evolved, I think we're all allowed to evolve. I think I would be, I mean, to stay true and very, very raw and honest, I would just say, yeah, it's still not my favorite sound for women. That said, I don't hear someone who speaks that way and judge them as not having the intellect to spar with me or something. I'm much more open to hiring women if that's the sound they have, if they're very qualified for the job. So I live much more in a, you can sound however the fuck you want, but if I have a preference, I guess I, I still feel like I'm allowed to have a preference on it for myself, for my children. I don't know. Most likely, my child will go through a sexy baby vocal stage based off the fact that I don't love it because kids do exactly the thing <laughs> that you don't want them to do. So if that's the least, if that's the worst of my problems, then I'm fine. You know, I was talking to my friend June Raphael about it, and she was kind of like, yeah, you know, it's, I really feel like women can sound however they want. And you, you know, and she kind of called me out on that part of it. I was like, yeah, this is such a good discussion. I so appreciate that point of view because I'm really trying to be in that space because, of course, I'm a, I mean, I'm a feminist. I mean, gosh, in a world is a feminist manifesto, you know, about the female voice. But I, I struggle. I, I do struggle. Do you think that voice is inherently anti-feminist? No. I think some people who have a high-pitched voice, they just have a high-pitched voice. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm not going to fault anyone for that. Someone who really puts it on like it's a patent leather overcoat that's a trend, mm -hmm. you know, or they're just like, this is going to make me sexy or sound more virile or more viable. Because it is, for me, linked to kind of feminine sexuality. And if we're saying that as you age, as long as you sound and look like, you know, a young woman, mm -hmm. then you're viable to fuck or whatever. Like that for me is where I get complicated. I'm like, can't a woman just like look and sound like her age, like someone who has had children or, you know, gone through life? <laughs> can't that be sexy? Yes. I'm speaking only for myself. Sure. But I do have a question. Does that critique extend to all kinds of things people do to retain youth or, or, or harken back to yeah, a time of being younger. That's why I'm saying it's, it's, it's my own personal preference. Right. So, so I, like, like plastic I, surgery, you feel... Well, that's, that's, you can't kind of put that on. It's too much. It's like, that's too big of a visual aesthetic right. conversation that doesn't really apply here. In what about when, when men have midlife crises and they buy cars and wear tight jeans and are trying I'm like, to... why is that only men? I just bought a 1979 <laughs> fucking Camaro and... Your dad owns race trucks. My that dad does own And you would know that because you are fucking researched. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm a motorhead. But um, I'm saying, you know what I'm saying? That, uh, people do a great deal of things. They do. 
And to you're try right. to retain some. This is what I notice. I look around at my direct female friendship community mm-hmm. and I go, oh, that's so curious that I, I hear voices that are very much embracing their age right. and their experience. I notice that. Now, I have another friend who I reference in the book. I have two friends who have high-pitched sounds off the truck. They were born with it. Mm -hmm. They don't mess with up speak, and they have a little fry, but a lot of people have fry because, that again, that's another trend that's kind of like just kind of seasoned through a lot of our modern speech. Yeah, Kissinger had fry. Exactly. We talked about Kissinger having a fry. I mean, fries are around. However, the super high-pitch, athletic, pushing your pitch way higher in order to seem or to feel sexualized or something or desired or youthful, I think for me, it starts to link into this like ageism too. You know, there's that's in there somewhere where I'm like, come on, like, can't we make a mature female sound something that is desirable Mm -hmm. and viable as a sexual viable in the dating or whatever, you know, as some as a sexual being, you know, I mean, I don't know if I'm articulating that perfectly, but I think it's in there somewhere. You said in the audiobook, aging is a privilege, so own it. I stand by that. <laughs> it is a privilege. I mean, the alternative to aging is death, dying. That sucks. Not great. Not great. You've said many times over the years, but just as recently as um, a month ago, you said, by the time I was 19, I felt as if I sounded like I was 40. Yeah. And I mean, I felt like that. But I, in truth, when I look back at the tapes, which I have, I I didn't actually sound that way. Mm. But I definitely felt that my voice had an old soul quality Mm -hmm. and that, I don't know, I think I probably strive for that, trying to find a voice that people will take me seriously, you know, and I guess that comes back to control and that comes back to like, wanting to seek some kind of organization within a life that feels sometimes chaotic. Mm-hmm. Now that you are uh, the age of the voice you always thought you had, mm-hmm. do you feel like you better understand it? I feel very confident and comfortable in my own skin, in my own vocal skin. I also feel still like I'm 12, but I just sound the way I sound. I mean, who I am to my core is really silly and playful and totally still connected to 12-year-old. I just don't sound like one. And even when I'm 67, 78, 90 years old, I'm still going to be connected to my 12-year-old self because you just feel as you get older, you're like, oh, okay. That's why people are like, oh, I I understand my parents now. You know, because you're like, well, we're all just in an, an older body and an older voice, hopefully. <laughs> um, and we can relish in the privilege of that as well as holding on to our playfulness because we shouldn't take ourselves so seriously in my personal view. Over and over, we've talked about how this audiobook, much like in a world, do mark time. And they represent who you were in that moment. And talking about them now, we can see all that's changed in the intervening years. And so in the spirit of that, I thought as a time capsule for us, if we were to do this again. In nine years? Sure. 
I, I, I was going to say like maybe five years. Like five years. I didn't know you wanted so much distance from me. No, no. I just thought nine years we were using nine. But yeah, nine. five. 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 Okay. What do you want for yourself? Well, I really feel like if I could choose, like I would just want to keep growing and participating in life in a way that's truthful and authentic and not judging myself and those around me. But also, in the same breath, I do echo what she said, <laughs> which is the privilege of growth and evolution, you know, comes in all forms and shapes. And I really enjoy the unexpected. I love it. I love for a person who enjoys control and organization and planning. I do all of that because I luxuriate in the fact that I can't really plan anything. And so I will stay liminal and floating until, you know, there are these touch points of solid ground. I love what I do for that reason. I'm always whisked off into unexpected places with all kinds of voices and all kinds of humans. And that, for me, is is the best part of my job. Well, I found a word I, I can't say. Mm -hmm. Whisked off. Yeah. Whisked. No, definitely not. Try it. Whisked. You just said it. Yeah. So if I, but if, if, but I, if you were going, if you weren't paying attention and you were just driving the truck on a on a sentence, whisked off. So I could whisked be whisked off. off. I could be whisked off. We just uh, had a long, winding conversation in which you uh, whisked us off into many different places, and for that, I thank you. Like Bell, what a pleasure. Thank you. That's our show. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Lake Bell, be sure to give us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen. I know it's silly, but in 2022, rating and reviewing our show on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find the show. Special thanks today to Nicole Morano, Anna Scrobich, Lucy Grebin, and of course, Lake Bell. To purchase her new audiobook, Inside Voice, Visit pushkin.fm slash audiobooks or visit the link in our show notes. You can also listen to Inside Voice wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend my talks with Ethan Hawke, Jenny Slate, Kate Blanchett, Jonathan Majors, Pedro Pascal, Laura Dern, and Matthew McConaughey. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, 
Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support Talk Easy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com slash shop. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Andrew Vastola. Our assistant editor is Lindsay Ellis. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Chris Shenoy. Photographs by Julius Chu. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Also want to give a special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez, along with our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Maya Kanig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to this special midweek episode of Talk Easy. I'll see you back here on Sunday for our final interview of the year with Nobel Peace Prize winning journalist Maria Reza. Until then, stay safe and so long. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Digital trends show up every day in business decisions and actions. West Monroe is the number one strategic partner translating technology into financial value for companies. The This Is Digital podcast applies West Monroe's two decades of secrets and best practices to your business's benefit. Favorite past topics from the last three seasons include how AI and the next generation of employees are shaping the workplace, becoming a product company, Highmark's journey, and what does it mean to put the customer first? Learn more at westmonroe.com.